afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much to the boyes for the uh, special music. It's very good night, very nice treat. Around this time, we began to think about Passover, as we heard in the sermonette from Mr. Maney, and again, welcome to uh, the brethren from Ash. Asheville as well as France and other places. One thing we consider in this time leading up to Passover, of course, is forgiveness. The forgiveness we have received from God and the forgiveness that we must extend to others. I'd like to talk about forgiveness today, but just in a particular vein. And that is that forgiveness is a gift. It's a gift that God gives to us, and it's a gift that we can give to others. The question is, are we giving the gift of forgiveness? I'd like us all to ask ourselves the question today. If you like a title, simply the gift of forgiveness. Let's think about that as we go through the sermon. You know, it's interesting that the word itself, forgive, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that the word forgive has to do with giving, right? It has give in the word. In fact, in the online etymology dictionary, it says the word forgive comes from the Old English forgiven, F-O-R-G-I-E-F-A-N, from for meaning completely and given meaning to give. So forgive literally means to completely give. It's a very special act of giving when we forgive one another. You know, Mr. Armstrong used to emphasize that as a way of life, we are to be giving. Of course, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, Jesus Christ is recorded as teaching, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But do we think of giving as only sharing our material possessions, sharing our time, sharing our things, sharing ourselves, which we should do, but sometimes overlook the fact that forgiving is a way of giving as well? And maybe one of the most profound ways of giving, one of the most complete ways of giving, that's what forgive means. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 23 to start off. Are we giving each other, brethren, the gift of forgiving? Matthew 18 and verse 23, this illustrates the, this concept well. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23, the parable that uh, we, we read, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. In verse 24, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown points out that a conservative estimate would be that this is about $7,500,000. Um, could be much more. Adam Clark writes that this sum was equivalent to the annual revenue of the whole British Empire at the time that he wrote it. Obviously, a sum that none of us could pay back, right? And that's the whole point. 
Verse 25, But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Now, the fact that this master removed or released the debt of $7,500,000, was that not a gift? This man owed him $7.5 million, perhaps, and he wrote it off. In effect, he was giving a gift of that amount to this, this gentleman, that you don't have to pay it back. Of course, the ruler here, or the master, is a type for God, and the servant is a type for us, that we could never pay back the debt owed to God through sin. But upon repentance and faith and commitment to obey and submit to him, he gives us a gift. We know that that gift is... The gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Stay where you are. I'll, I'll just read this. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So none of us can boast that we somehow worked back and worked off our debt, right? Grace is the gift of God. The fact that God forgave us when we come to baptism, he wrote it off. It's a gift. Now let's go back to this parable again. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 28. But that servant, that's us now, went out and found one of his fellow servants, and that's one of our brethren, one of our friends, put in a name, uh, someone other than you, right? Went back and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. Now, to get this in perspective, again, JFB says if Jewish money is intended, this debt was to the other less than one in a million. Now, we do a little math, and that winds up being about $7.50. $7.50. So you and I are forgiven a debt of $7.5 million, and yet we have a friend who owes us 7 bucks and change, and we grab him by the throat. I think that's what he's trying to convey. That in comparison, all the problems, all the hurts, all the offenses that happen in this life are each worth about what? Seven dollars. Can we forgive a debt of seven fifty for the sake of our relationship with each other? And that's the challenge laid before us as members of God's church. Verse 29, So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servant saw what they had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. 
so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Why are we commanded to give the gift of forgiveness? Well, because God set the example. And he said, if I'm willing to forgive you this big debt, certainly you can forgive one one millionth of it to each other. The question is, can we? As we examine ourselves before Passover, forgiving one another is giving a gift to one another. And one of the most unselfish, one of the most complete gifts that we could possibly give. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. In light of this gift, we, we often read this verse in terms of giving offerings cheerfully. What about giving gifts cheerfully? How about forgiving cheerfully? Do we do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You know, are we kind of stingy with the gift of forgiveness? Do we dole it out a penny at a time, you know, and the penny's kind of stuck to our hand, and we really don't want to let it go? Do we just pay off the very minimum balance on our forgiveness to one another? The principle is if we sow sparingly, if we give forgiveness one grain at a time, guess what? The blessings are going to be sparingly as well. We're not going to get very good results. Verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's put in there, God loves a cheerful forgiver. It's not just about offerings. It's about doing what we should do, but not just grudgingly, not just because we have to, because we want to. You know, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God is a God of abundant pardon. Now, what does that mean? I mean, you're either pardoned or you're not, right? You're either released from the debt or you're not. You're either in the electric chair or you're not. You're either on death row or you're not, right? There's no middle ground. Well, the point is that God wants us to develop an attitude towards forgiving, not just forgiving each other, but forgiving completely, abundantly. Nothing held back. Generously, graciously, easy to entreat. As we read, not half-heartedly, not grudgingly. Does that describe us? Let's turn over to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16. Because not only is God a complete 
an abundant forgiver. He's also an eager and quick forgiver. Notice Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 16. It says, But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their hearts, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. They hardened their hearts, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Brethren, can that be said about us? as a person, as in our character, that we are ready to pardon. Not only complete in our forgiveness, but quick to give it. That's the way God is. Psalm 86 and verse 5, I'll just read it. Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Are we ready to forgive? Or again, is it kind of grudging? Do we kind of hold out? Do we drag our feet? Are we hesitant to forgive? You know, that's kind of off-putting to other people, isn't it? It's kind of hard to apologize to someone who is not ready to forgive, right? Notice in Luke chapter 15 and verse 11, there's a parable that illustrates this as well. Very profound. Luke chapter 15 and verse... The point is, where do we fall on this spectrum? And what should we be doing as Passover draws near, as we examine ourselves? We should be completely and abundantly forgiving and quickly, eagerly forgiving. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, the parable of the prodigal son. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. You know the story. We're not going to read the whole thing. But when things got bad, when he hit rock bottom and came to himself and wanted to repent, wanted to change, realize what was important and what was just a facade and wanted to turn his back on the facade and come back to his father. He made his way back to his father. But notice in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him way off in the distance and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. His father ran to forgive him. Is there any hesitancy in the father here? Or is he ready to pardon? Was there any reluctance? No, of course not. When he recognized his son, he bolted. He wanted to get to him. He wanted to close that gap. He recognized his son. Now, who is this talking about? Of course, the correlation is that God the Father has that attitude towards us. He is abundant and ready and quick to forgive when we turn to Him, right? 
if we are repentant, if we make our way back to Him, if we're turning back to Him after we sin, He won't just wait for us on the other side of the field. He will take off running. He won't meet us in the middle. He'll meet us on our side. He's that eager. He's ready to pardon. The question is, are we? Verse 21. The the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. What an amazing picture of the attitude and willingness that God has to forgive us. Not halfway. Not a little bit at a time. Not handing one penny at a time. But writing off the debt, right? When we repent. And we turn to him. But there's more to the story. Because there were two characters in, in this parable. We see an older son, verse 25. His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound... Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. So you get the picture. The father runs to meet the repenting son. The brother runs away when the son comes, right? You see the contrast? Not only was he hesitant and reluctant to give the gift of forgiveness, he outright refused to. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many many years I have been serving you, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry. And be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Brethren, if our Father is quick and eager to forgive us, why do we sometimes hold out on each other? Why is it so hard humanly to sometimes let go of things with each other? And we do. We're human. That's... The way it is. But we must get past it. And this is the time, of course, at Passover when we have to think about that. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Why do we need to forgive? Well, it's commanded. Notice, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. In this manner, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We are commanded to give the gift of of forgiveness to each other if we want to be in God's kingdom, right? But notice something else significant here. That us giving the gift to others is directly related to that gift coming back to us, right? Us giving the gift of forgiveness to others is directly related to us enjoying the benefits and the blessings of forgiveness as well. It's interesting. It's not just an eternal life, but even health-wise, even in positive benefits right now. There was an article in the Reader's Digest some years ago entitled, The Healing Power of Forgiveness. When we give the gift of forgiveness to others, guess what? We get a gift back. We are actually giving ourselves a gift. This is what the article says. To forgive is a valuable gift to yourself. According to Stanford University psychologist Carl Thorison, his team has built a six-session group treatment to help people forgive. A study of 259 adults who took part saw stress, anger, and symptoms such as headaches and stomach upsets go way down compared with a control group. Positive effects remain six months later. Forgiveness means giving up the right to be angry. Have you given yourself the gift of forgiveness lately? I'm not talking about forgiving yourself. I'm talking about forgiving others, and then we are benefited by that when we let go. Another article, The Art of Forgiveness in Better Homes and Gardens, April 2002. It says, Forgiveness research is fairly new, but the findings so far are compelling. Anger-prone people were three times more likely to have heart attacks or bypass surgery than less angry folks, according to a study that included 13,000 men and women. Men who were better at diffusing anger had half as many strokes as angrier men in a seven-year study of 2,110 middle-aged men conducted by University of Michigan researchers. A University of Pittsburgh study of 680 women with chest pain found those who harbored feelings of anger were four times more likely to have unhealthy cholesterol levels and a higher body mass index, which were linked to heart disease. We actually are benefited by forgiving others. Have you given yourself this gift? Now, this is no surprise because we have all kinds of scriptures that show that we are benefited by this. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. What a descriptive and horrible way to put it. (laughs) What envy does to us, it rots us from the inside out. Proverbs 17.1, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. Wouldn't you say a quiet house is one where forgiveness is practiced? Well, is our home a place of peace and and quiet and calm and forgiveness, or is it one of strife? 
Well, it, it may be related to how forgiving we are at home. Proverbs 12, verse 20, Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. Well, who are counselors of peace? People who are seeking for ways of building bridges, of forgiving wrongs in their own lives or others. Those who are striving to forgive and those who help others to forgive. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5. Let's go over there briefly. The question is, what about us? Are we giving others that gift? Are we giving ourselves a gift of forgiveness? At this Passover season. Philippians 4 and verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, be by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Brethren, if Paul said we are to be anxious for nothing, wouldn't that include forgiving others? That we are to have no unforgiven conflict or unresolved thing with family members, with brethren, with friends. Because not forgiving makes us uptight. It makes us anxious. It makes us tense, doesn't it? Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. God's Spirit can give us peace when it seems impossible to get peace. Even in situations where it's very difficult. You know, truly forgiving is not an easy thing to do. We all know that. We all struggle with that from time to time. Even in the church of God, right? But let's talk about some ways to break it down and talk about some of the steps that can help us give the gift to ourselves and to others. Number one, number one. Admit it when we've been hurt. Do you admit it even to yourself when you've been offended? You know, sometimes in the church we put such a high premium on not being offended, and we shouldn't be easily offended. But we also need to be honest with ourselves when our feelings are hurt. Psalm chapter 15, verse 1 says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. You know, leading up to Passover, we are to examine ourselves. We're to be honest with ourselves. If we have been hurt by someone, we need to be honest about it. We need to admit it to ourselves. We are not robots. We are not Mr. Spock. Well, maybe there are a few who are Mr. Spock, but most of us aren't. We have emotions, right? We get our feelings hurt. Sometimes we may find it difficult to admit to ourselves that we've been hurt because it's, well, then we'll be weak, right? 
It's not weak, it's human. We all are human. We all get our feelings hurt from time to time. It's not unusual or strange or bad. It's normal. But what do we do with it? Admitting it to ourselves is the first step to working through it. You know, sometimes we feel upset, but we can't quite put our finger on it. We can't quite figure out why. Maybe that's part of self-examination, to go to God, to cry out to Him. Ask Him to help us figure out what is frustrating us even when we can't. Maybe it's a conflict with someone else that we really haven't even admitted to ourselves. Psalm chapter 77 and verse 1. Psalm chapter 77 and verse 1. I know I've gone from preaching to meddling now. You know, We're we're talking about self-examination. It's kind of personal, isn't it? But unless we get down where it is personal, you know, we're really not going to be examining ourselves to the degree that we need to. David was a very passionate man. He sometimes cried out to God in frustration and confusion, asking for God to help him to even understand what was going on inside. Psalm chapter 77 and verse 1, he says, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. You know, sometimes we're so frustrated. That's where we are, right? We don't even know what to do. We're so frustrated. We refuse to be comforted. But we can't stay there. We have to keep going through the process. Verse 3, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Brethren, have you been hurt? Is there unresolved tension in your life because of pain inflicted by someone else ask god to help you to face it to admit it to recognize it it's painful but it's the first step towards really dealing with it putting it in the past number two we acknowledge if we've been hurt number two we analyze why we are hurt You know, sometimes we take the first step and admit we're hurt, and we jump to the end and go to our brother and really nail him, right? I mean, we're going to just shove it down his throat. We know he offended us, and now it's time to take it to him, right? No, there there are other steps. Analyze why we are hurt. Why did what they said hurt us? Why did what they did hurt us? Or why did what they didn't say or didn't do hurt us? Did they touch a nerve they knew nothing about? Something from our past that reaches deep. Have you ever noticed that sometimes our reactions are not equal to the infraction? You come home and you kick the cat. Well, the cat didn't do anything. Someone at the office did something, right? 
Or you are short with someone at the office. Well, it was actually the traffic that someone cut you off, so you're short with somebody at the office. They didn't do anything wrong. Or you cut someone off because of something that happened at home, right? We all do this from time to time. We sometimes don't resolve issues, and we don't really figure out why we're bugged. And sure enough, the unresolved issue comes up at a very inopportune time, right? And we say something we regret, and that's what happens. Notice Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. Here's an example, I think, where it seems like this happened. Numbers chapter 20 and verse 1 says, The children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. It's getting like a broken record, right? I mean, this happened so many times, it's old hat. Over and over again, the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the rod. Here's the drill. You know the drill, Moses. Do it again. You know, you know how to handle this. We've been through this a lot of times. Take the rod, you and your brother. Gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes. This had happened at least once before and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So you know the story. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded them, him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now, would you say that Moses had unresolved tension, brethren? Would you say that, I mean, he had reacted perfectly every other time? He had been the picture of calm and of meekness and composure. He always knew what to do, he was always in control. But this time he lost it. You know, you think about it, the children of Israel must have been shocked. They didn't see him act this way before. What happened? This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Moses was like, I've had enough. You guys are rebels. That's it. What was happening? Every other time, something was building up until it came down and he went kaboom. The sad story is letting this frustration and conflict 
and unresolved tension or resentment or whatever it was, letting it build up and get the best of him had some permanent negative results. He was not allowed to go into the promised land. Didn't matter all the other times that he had done it right. Now, no, he wasn't thrust out of the kingdom, but it had permanent results. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Brethren, we need to think about this. If we have unresolved anger, and we don't admit it to ourselves, and we don't figure out why it's bugging us, we don't analyze it, it's still there. It's still down deep, and it may come up in some very unwanted times. And it may, if it's a pattern, it may cause some consequences that we don't want. It could keep us out of the kingdom. I mean, you know, this is serious. As we examine ourselves, if we see unresolved issues, let's think it through. What is really bugging me? Is it really this person who hurt me or is it my pride? Is it something in me? If it's my pride, well, then that's the problem I need to deal with, not the person. It's crucial to really coming to the point where we can give others the gift of forgiveness and in turn we can give ourselves the gift of forgiveness. What's the next step? Number three, admit if we've done anything to precipitate the offense. Admit if if we've done anything to precipitate the offense. You know, these are painful questions, but we have to be honest with ourselves. That's the nature of self-examination, right? Think back to a time when you were offended by someone, by a short answer or a curt answer or an insult or whatever. I'm sorry for bringing up, you know, bad memories, but, you know, just or, or just think hypothetically. Never mind. You don't have to think of a real situation. Were you totally innocent? Or if I think back to a time when I was hurt by someone. Was I totally innocent? Did we step on their toes in some way? Did we push one of their buttons in some way? Now, this doesn't normally come naturally. After all, if I'm the one offended, why should I examine myself, right? They're the ones that offended me. And yet we are to do that. Matthew chapter 5, notice. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. We are to be aware of how others perceive us. And if others have a problem with us. And we are to do whatever we can to resolve that. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of the hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer and you'd be thrown into prison. We are to be aware of how we are affecting other people. Part of our self-examination is to have our antenna up so we can we can sense how we are coming across to others and not just be concerned about it when others hurt us. But especially when we are offended. Go through a mental checklist. What did I do? What did I say? What was my attitude towards them? How could it have been different? How could I have done things differently where maybe it wouldn't have led to dot, dot, dot? Maybe if I didn't step on their toe, they wouldn't have punched me in the nose, you know? Um, There usually is at least one little thing that we could find that we could have done differently, right? Am I the only one in here who... (laughs) Who is human? This is just life, isn't it? But we have to deal with it. Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. Luke chapter 6. And verse 37. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. You know, if we're generous with forgiveness to others, guess what? They're going to be generous back to us. And that's a good thing. We all need mercy, don't we? We all want others to give us some slack sometimes. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, here, let me remove the speck that's in your eye, the grain, the dot, the, you know, the, the tiny little uh, uh, part, uh, particle. When you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, before we're quick to point out <laughs> what someone else did to offend us, picking out their splinter, we need to analyze our own selves our motivations, our actions, our contribution to the situation. Remember the story of David fleeing from Jerusalem and the Benjamite Shemai was cursing him, throwing rocks at him, and his mighty men said, you know, should we lop off his head? Should we do him in? And David said, no, I think I know where this is coming from. I think God is sending me a message. There are things that I have done wrong. Now, Shemai was still throwing rocks at him. He was the instrument of the offense, but David was examining himself. He was in the frame of mind that he was thinking, wait a minute, there's something that I need to think about. 
We need to examine ourselves. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 45 and verse verse 1. I think the story of Joseph is interesting in this regard. Joseph was unjustly bound and sold to the traders going to Egypt. He hadn't done anything wrong, right? Well, put yourself in the brothers of Joseph's shoes. How would you feel if you were Joseph's brother? And he was telling you, can we use the word bragging? He was bragging to you about the dreams he was having that someday you would bow down to him. And guess what? He got a new coat. And he'd wear that everywhere he went. And you didn't get a new coat. Nobody else got a new coat. He got a new coat. Now, Joseph is an amazing person, a sterling example. But do you think as he was going down to Egypt and as he then was standing there being sold as a servant and then as he was thrust in prison, do you think he was doing a little bit of self-examination? Thinking, why am I here? What did I do? Oh, yeah. Maybe I was a little bit arrogant. Maybe I was a little bit cocky. Maybe my brothers had a right to be kind of ticked off at me. I'm not justifying their actions, obviously. The point is, he was, when we look at the story, it's obvious that he learned something from the time that he was taken to Egypt till the time that he met his brothers again. Because look at this, Genesis chapter 45 and verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. This is when his brothers came to him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers couldn't answer him. They were dismayed in his presence. And he said to them, Please come near to me. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not angry at you. Brethren, do you think that Joseph had brooded over this trespass for however many years he was in prison in a servant? Do you think that he was resentful and that he... He thought about it all the time, and he thought about how I'm going to get back at them. It doesn't fit with what happened here, because now suddenly they were in front of him. I submit to you, it seems like somewhere along the line, he made the choice to forgive them, right? And by the time they came, it w- this was a long-resolved issue in his mind. And that's why he could reach out to them. He said, come near. Uh, don't, don't be grieved or angry with, with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. These two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing or harvesting. But God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Talk about a big picture. (laughs) They bound him. They sold him. They betrayed him. But he saw 
there was something bigger happening. And maybe it was even something for him to learn a lesson. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. For Joseph to be abundant in his forgiveness and eager in his forgiveness, he had to have dealt with this and resolved it in his mind, right? What about us? What about us? You know, there are times when we are totally innocent in an offense, you know, and we didn't do anything. But most of the time we can think of things that we could have done better if we really analyze. It's important in really coming to the point where we can give the gift of forgiveness to others. Number four, number four, get God involved. You know, this should happen right away, but we're just putting it here, number four, just to find a place to put it. But let's go over to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. This is really an interesting chapter referring to um, fasting and drawing near to God, but it's interesting just how much it also has to do with relationships and reconciling and working through difficult relationships. Notice Isaiah chapter 58. We're not going to read the whole thing. He talks about uh, not doing a fast the wrong way. Uh, Verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. The margin says, The things wherewith you grieve others. You know, fasting is is a way to improve our relationships and to think about ways where we can be reconciled. Verse 6, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? You know, there are a lot of yokes, aren't there? There are a lot of things that weigh us down. But unforgiveness is one of the worst. And isn't it true when we're not forgiving someone, and we finally come to the point where we do, that you feel this weight coming off your shoulders. When we, when we forgive someone, it's the, it feels like a yoke is being lifted off. Isn't that what he's talking about? Undo the heavy burdens. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Forgiving others. But we need God's help to do that. We need fasting. We need a drawing to draw near to God. Verse 7, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, you cover him and hide not yourself from your own flesh? What separates us from our brethren? Well, sometimes unresolved hurt, unresolved conflict. Verse 8, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. What often stops us from forgiving other people? Why should I forgive him? Look what he did to me, right? Look where my finger is. The pointing of the finger. How can we forgive them? Don't, you know, 
we're blaming them for us not becoming forgiving. Well, it has nothing to do with with them ultimately. It's interesting too, this chapter talks about drawing near to God and, and suddenly things start working better in our life, even 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 feeling better, uh, peace and, and health. Verse 10, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So as we examine ourselves, let's ask God to be involved. Let's pray for him to to guide us. Let's fast for guidance on how to make our relationships work better. And if there is conflict, if there is unresolved tension, ask him to help us do deal with that. Number 5. Number 5. Seek for reconciliation. Seek for reconciliation. It's interesting the way the very next verse in verse 12 that it phrases it phrases this verse. The context of the whole chapter in one respect is talking about sin and, and, and broken relationships and how to fix them. Then all of a sudden it jumps to a prophecy of the future, right? Of rebuilding uh, cities and streets and houses in the millennium. Well, let's read it, verse 12. Then those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorers of streets to dwell in. You know, I wonder if we think of the repairer of the breach, could that also mean that the resurrected saints the glorified saints serving in the kingdom at that time, are going to be the ones who will be instrumental in teaching people how to resolve conflicts, right? Teaching those in our cities how to deal with hurt, how to deal with offense, how to repair the breach between people. You know, we'll be building cities, we'll be building bridges and roads, but isn't this the more significant repairs that need to be made in the future? And if we're to be doing that, how much are we doing it now? How much are we going to be qualified to help other people work through conflict in the future if we're not doing it now? And is this not a chance to practice? to know how to do it, to be reconcilers. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 14. Second Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Again, that God paid off a debt of $7.5 million, or whatever it was in that parable, and so he's asking us to forgive a debt of seven fifty. We're all in the business of repairing relationships. That's one of the major things that we are to be doing. You know, why else are we here? <laughs> to do the work, to build God's character, to have his holy, righteous character. But part of that is to learn how to repair relationships. How are we doing? We read in Matthew 18:15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? You have gained your brother. You've closed the gap. Doesn't always work. The next couple of verses point that out, but the desire is there and we should do the best of our ability to reach that point. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Romans chapter 12 and verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, you know, sometimes we can look at this and say, okay, as much as lies within me, as much as I can... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be forgiving as much as I can. No, that's not what it says. It says, as much as is dependent on you, live peaceably with all men. You can't control the other guy. But I can't control the other guy. But we can control ourselves. And we can often go a lot further than we think, right? With God's help. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We must do everything we can to work towards reconciliation, to close that gap. Next point, number six. We must sincerely forgive from the heart. Sincerely forgive from the heart. You know, letting go of forgiveness, when we letting go of hurt, when we really do it from the heart, when it's complete, when it's abundant, when there's nothing held back, it's really liberating, isn't it? That weight coming off our shoulders, it's a wonderful feeling. And yet, you know, some people hold on to hurts for years, even decades. It's very sad. There's no need for it. There's kind of a sad story about former American boxers Muhammad Ali and Smokin' Joe Frazier, uh, who, of course, battled each other for the heavyweight title in the early 1970s. Their animosity towards each other grew famous, didn't it? Muhammad Ali called Joe Frazier a gorilla, and he was insulted by that, and he... he uh, 
heaped insults on Muhammad Ali. And in fact, in his autobiography, Fraser wrote, it became my mission to show him the error of his foolish pride, to beat it into him. What a mission. <laughs> Bad mission. But the saddest part of the story is the animosity that was outside the ring when they were fighting continued for decades. In an article that was written just a few years ago, it explains their ongoing relationship this way. Frazier lives in Philadelphia, owns and runs a gym there. His health is not the best as he has diabetes and health, uh, high blood pressure. He and his nemesis have alternated between public apologies and public insults. One exchange came in 2001 after Ali told the New York Times he was sorry for what he said about Frazier before their first fight. Now, remember, in 2001, he's apologizing for 1970 or 71, okay? Frazier, at first, Frazier accepted the apology, but then he said, he didn't apologize to me, he apologized to the paper, Frazier said in a June issue of TV Guide. I'm still waiting for him to say it to me. So Ali's response was, if you see Frazier, you tell him he's still a gorilla. Okay. <laughs> this is 2001. These guys are still at each other's throats. They're not even fighting. They... Now, brethren, it's easy for us to see how futile that is, right? The futility and ridiculousness of hanging on to that. But what about us? Are there areas where we need to just let go of old hurts? Are we holding grudges today that color our opinion of people, even brethren? If we are, we're only hurting ourselves. We're only denying ourselves the wonderful gift of forgiveness. We don't really hurt them. Sure, they might feel kind of bad about it, but they go on. They do other things. They're not thinking about us all the time. We're hurting ourselves if we don't grant forgiveness. And we may be putting a barrier in front of ourselves that will keep us out of the kingdom and send us into the lake of fire. I mean, that's what the scripture says. When Peter asked Jesus Christ, how often shall he forgive a brother? Of course, Christ said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, stop and think a moment. What was he getting at? You know, the assumption is the person is apologizing for the same thing over and over again. Imagine if somebody stomped on your toe and then apologized and you forgave them. And the next day, they stomped on your toe again. And you apologize, they apologized and you forgave them. And the next time, they stomped on your toe again. And you apologized and forgave them. Now, after a while, don't you think you would doubt their sincerity? <laughs> if they kept stomping on your toe? The point is that if this would go on and on, we still have to keep forgiving them. Now, we might move our toe. Or <laughs> we might 
uh, get steel-toed boots or something, but we still have to forgive, right? What if someone doesn't apologize? You know, I've heard uh, some say, I'll never forgive so-and-so until they apologize to me. We must not mistake God's forgiveness with our forgiveness. When God forgives, he absolves a person of guilt. But we don't have that power, do we? Our forgiveness has more to do with our relationship with him. We do not have the power to forgive them in the overall sense. Only God does. And God has the right to demand repentance from every human being because ultimately he's, he's the one against whom we have all sinned. And he's the one who forgives. But the question is, do we really have the right to demand repentance and confession from each other before we forgive them? Now, we, we may want to. We may feel like it. It may make it easier and better. But if we demand that and we're not God, if we are holding out for an apology before we forgive others, we're only hurting ourselves. And we're going to be the ones who suffer. We're cutting ourselves off from the gift of forgiveness. We might be cutting ourselves out of the kingdom and going towards the lake of fire. For how much? Seven fifty? Is it worth it? You know, it's interesting that even though God does have the right to demand repentance, and all human beings ultimately will repent if they want to be in the kingdom, it's interesting that God himself sets the example. Notice in Luke chapter 23. Of being willing to forgive even before human beings are ready to apologize. Remember when Christ was on the cross, on the stake, when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He wasn't condoning what they were doing. He wasn't absolving them from guilt. But Jesus Christ understood they really didn't understand what they were doing. And someday they would understand. And they would repent. Brethren, can we have that kind of attitude towards others? That we can let things go, knowing, even if we don't get an apology, knowing that down the road... There may be a tremendous tearful reunion where they realize how they hurt us. And you know what? We realize how we hurt them too. But in the meantime, can we love them? Can we respect them? Can we forgive them from the heart? We read that God shows his love for us in that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. An amazing act. What right have we not to forgive one another? Even, frankly, if we don't, they don't apologize to us. 
when we forgive others, it's really not for them. It's, it's for us. It's for our own well-being. Even in the world, people recognize the value of forgiving even when there isn't a formal apology. From the Reader's Digest article again, March 2002, Fred Luskin, a Stanford University psychologist and author of Forgive for Good, put his method to the test on five women from Northern Ireland whose sons had been murdered. After undergoing a week of forgiveness training, the women's sense of hurt measured by psychological tests had fallen by more than half. They were also much less likely to feel depressed and angry. He says, forgiving isn't about condoning what happened, says Luskin. It's about breaking free of the person who wronged us. So where does that leave us? After we forgive from the heart, what else do we do? Well, there's one more thing. Number seven. Number seven, forget it. Forget it. We have a saying, forgive and forget, right? Should we forget wrongs? What does that mean? Well, we first have to look at the word forget. Maybe forgiving and forgetting has less to do with not being able to remember something, like you forget your phone number or, you know, forget someone's name, that you really can't recall it, but rather that we choose not to hold on to it. That seems to be what the English word means. Again, going to the online etymology dictionary about the word forget. It comes from the old English word forgetten. F-O-R-G-Y-T-A-N, from for, meaning passing by, letting go, and gitan, to grasp. The literal sense would be to lose one's grip on something, to forget. Forgetting means you, you, you let it out of your grasp and it floats away. Maybe that's how we should look at hurts and wrongs, too. In fact, that, that's how God approaches forgiving our sins. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's drop down to verse 34. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. Now at college, we would often have philosophical arguments about what does this mean? Does God actually forget it, you know, so that he can't remember things? Well, it seems to be more that he, he consciously puts it out of his mind. Remember when he talks about how I, I, I will separate your, your sins from the east to the west? Um, Prudence Concordance points out in the Hebrew, the, the word east is before. The word west is behind. So the concept may be that, that God is putting our sins behind him. He's letting go. He's not thinking about it. When he sees Joe the bank robber, he doesn't just say, oh, that's Joe the bank robber, if Joe has repented of robbing banks. It's not what he automatically thinks about isn't that comforting that when you and i repent of our sins 
when he sees you and he sees me, he doesn't automatically think, oh, that's so-and-so who did this and this and this and this and that. Right? Because he is consciously putting it behind him. He's forgetting it. What about us? Do we do that for each other? Or do we hang on to negative feelings about others? Well, I mean, you know, maybe if Joe, if we know Joe the bank robber, maybe we wouldn't let him hold our money. But but we can't, you know, we have to not be naive, but we can't also let his sins define him. When I say the name Darth Vader, do you have a positive response or a negative response? When I say the name Genghis Khan, Positive or negative? When I say the name Adolf Hitler, positive or negative? Negative, right? We connect certain things with that person. Real or imagined. You know, Darth Vader is whatever. Brethren, the point is this. Do we have that same reaction with people? When we see them, when we hear their name, we have a reaction, an emotional reaction about them. If we do, there's unresolved conflict that we haven't dealt with and we need to deal with. That's what it seems to be that God does when we repent. He puts it behind him. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse verse 1. Things to think about as we approach the Passover. He said, For the law, having a shadow of the things good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. The old covenant system was just a reminder of sin every year. It really didn't take away sin, just the, the processes of the, the, uh, the sacrifices. Verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Verse 12, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You know, when we take the Passover, we are remembering and memorializing the act that Christ did of taking our sins on himself, of giving the greatest gift he could give. And that was his life so that we could be forgiven. So that debt could be wiped clean. And aren't we grateful that we are forgiven? Mr. Meredith wrote, the article in the recent LCN, March, April 2008. 
we, my dear brethren, should have a profound awareness that we have been forgiven of our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. As I've stated in the past, we truly are the church of the forgiven. It's extremely helpful for us to realize this constantly and to focus on how grateful we should be that our sins can be fully forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, it, brethren, if God is forgiving us, and he has given us the most precious commodity in the universe, the life of Christ himself, in order that we might be forgiven. Forgiveness is a huge priority in his plan, don't you think? Without it, we can't be in the kingdom. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He is willing to forgive us, and he's willing to wash us and perfect us and change us eventually to be in his very family and very kingdom. But brethren, if we are to be like him, if we are to reap these blessings and benefits, if we want to receive the gift of forgiveness, we have to give it to others. We must be willing to admit when we're hurt. We must analyze why we're hurt. We must acknowledge our part in conflicts. We must ask for God's involvement in the process of reconciliation. We must forgive from the heart. And we must be willing to forget. In this Passover season, as we examine ourselves, let's make sure we are giving to others and ourselves the gift of forgiveness.